0: May it police the court, counsel? My name is Bradford Colbert, I represent the appellant in this matter. We're asking this court to reverse Mr. Jarris's conviction. The essential issue before the court is whether Mr. Jarris's conviction should be reversed because the state introduced extremely prejudicial and irrelevant evidence during the trial. Because that evidence deprived Mr. Jarris of its constitutional right to a fair trial, his conviction should be reversed and remanded for a new trial. The case involved allegations of sexual misconduct. The complainant said the sexual activity was non-consensual. Mr. Jarris and his partner said the activity was consensual. The prejudicial testimony came through the testimony of Detective Matthew Shirky. So can I just um, so there
1: when the when the motion. A mistrial was brought it was about kind of a discovery violation that this report wasn't disclosed to the defense and then as you walk through the argument it kind of turns into an admissibility argument that this information these opinions non-expert opinions and character evidence shouldn't have been admitted what's the crux of the constitutional problem here is it the discovery violation or is it the admissibility issue
0: both, Your Honor. I think that and the court did so, find.
1: So what are the what's the constitutional problem with the with the admission of the evidence?
0: That it was irrelevant and prejudicial and denied his constitutional right to fair trial because the evidence was so prejudicial. And what what case
1: law do we have that says evidence that's admitted, kind of an evidentiary issue that this was more prejudicial than probative, et cetera? Where does the line get drawn that this is so prejudicial that it turns to a constitutional analysis instead of just a typical admissibility analysis?
0: I I think that line is hard to draw, Your Honor. For this argument, I looked at that particular issue. And the court's quite clear is that there is a line. Where that line is difficult to discern where it is. But there certainly is a difference between an evidentiary error and evidence that comes in that is so prejudicial that denies a person his constitutional right to a fair trial. And that, in fact, is what was argued here. And so in Cox, in that line of cases, at least in the
1: specific facts there, the constitutional issue is actually not just the 14th Amendment fair trial, but also kind of a Sixth Amendment, because this wasn't admitted through the trial process but came from outside the trial. There's a concentration and impartial jury kind of issue. So, are you, I guess what I want to do is: Are you are you making kind of a a new argument here in the sense that just the Fourteenth Amendment fair trial provisions and our state constitution that has there there's actually can be a constitutional element to what we would typically view as an admissibility if the if the if the information admitted is so prejudicial that there's actually a, it it
0: takes on a constitutional dimension. Am I? I don't know if I'm being clear about that. that that's the argument, Your Honor. I, I would I would suggest this it's not a new argument. This court has been clear that that is part of what, and I can point to several cases where they talk. And in fact, this court has said the difference. It you know we will, for example, when looking at harmless error, it's different where there's just an evidentiary error as opposed to an evidentiary error that rises to the level of a constitutional violation. So I would suggest that it's the There is certain evidence that's so prejudicial that it denies a person his right to a fair trial. And I would suggest that's what Cox says. Cox says that is a due process argument. That's what Cox involves,
2: and that's a due process argument. Counsel, can you point me to a Minnesota case in which the evidence shouldn't have come in, and it was so prejudicial that even though one or more cautionary instructions were given, still the constitutional right to a fair trial was violated. Is there any such case? I, I'm sorry,
0: Your Honor, I, I don't have that right there. What I can tell you is that that's the test. And I can't point to a case where this court has said this evidence was so prejudicial. I, you know, I believe that, I can point you to the Supreme Court cases, and unfortunately I can't remember the name of it, where the testimony of a co-defendant confessing comes in. That was so
2: prejudicial. So certainly this- And was there cautionary instruction? I I don't know your honor here's the problem I have with your argument and I'll just lay it on the table we've had we got in this case we got three not one but three cautionary instructions we've got the one at the time the evidence came in uh, the testimony came in and then was essentially stricken jury told to disregard it we've got the instructions before the jury goes to deliberate and then we've got a question from the jury with what I think is a legally appropriate response from the judge Now, typically, when evidence comes in that shouldn't, unless there's something really unusual about it, we say a cautionary instruction uh, solves the problem. Are there any cases in which cautionary instructions have been given, U.S. Supreme Court or Minnesota Supreme Court, where the, the court has just said, nope, the evidence was too prejudicial, can't cure with a cautionary instruction? I think, Your Honor, I mean, I think this case is one of
0: those cases, and I do think the jury's response in this particular case... Yeah, but I'm I'm looking for precedent. I'm sorry, I do not have one where the the curative instruction didn't cure the problem, which is what the court has asked for. I do not have that specific case at hand. I am sorry for that. But what I can tell you, in this particular case, those instructions did not prevent the jurors from asking about the report. The trial court, as... You suggest instructed the jury when it came in, but the jury obviously that did not settle the issue with the jury.
3: What are you basing that on? Because for me, when the jury actually asked the question, posed the question to the trial court um, while they were in deliberations, speaks to that they were being a very responsible jury and they wanted clarity in what their confines were. So, tell me
0: how you get. Could- Come out the other way. Well, one of the things the, jury, the court instructed the jury was, do not discuss it. And w- clearly, they discussed it. What the jury said is, what from Detective Shirkier's testimony are we not to take into consideration? They obviously were talking about that. So the fact that they were discussing But there were parts
3: of the detective's testimony that they could take into and and discuss. So how do you know what part they were talking about?
0: Well, uh, they they went on to ask, is the police report evidence that was admitted? We don't have it and are wondering if we can see it. So that was at issue here. That's exactly what is issued, the police report. And so that indicates that the jury did not Follow the court's instruction. The quite clearly, the court's instructed don't discuss this. So it's a matter of the jury's discussing. And again, how could you not discuss this?
2: It, how- so- it sounds like, though, the jury's just trying to make sure they get the instructions right. They were told not to discuss the testimony, but then it, it referenced a a report, a, a written or computerized report. So the jury's just saying, is, is that part of your instruction, Your Honor? I mean... It sounds like uh, this jury should be uh, commended rather than reversed for trying to f- trying to figure out what the parameters of in the instruction were. Uh, but I do think it indicates that that they were talking about it. And of course, we don't know what we we're
0: talking about. And But you also have to look at the evidence itself. How could that not be, even if they didn't discuss it? Looking at what... counsel, am I correct
3: that the images themselves, which I think were about 3,000, was not they were not part of the evidence that was submitted during the trial
0: that's correct John.
3: and am I also correct that um, defendants or the defense had those three thousand images or at least access to them that's correct John. and that the piece that we're talking about is notes made by the detective that were not handed over to defense
0: that's the discovery piece the The, the issue at issue is his testimony and six w-
3: questions that were posed to him yes, and six.
0: <laughs> incredibly prejudicial question first they asked the ju- the detective was able to say we found pornography on his phone now that may or may not there are certainly some jurors who would look skeptically at someone who possesses pornography on their phone that is certainly prejudicial but it might not be enough but the detective went on to testify that in fact some of those images were of a sexually violent nature they were of sexually violent nature. That is incredibly prejudicial. The idea that a police officer would testify that what we found on this person's phone was not just pornography, but in fact, was pornography that was sexually violent. And then the officer went on to say that those sexually violent images, in fact, corroborated the testimony of the complainant. It's difficult to imagine more prejudicial
1: evidence. So can I, can I just kind of follow this argument through as I'm thinking about it? So let's assume that this is prejudicial at kind of a constitutional level. So then the analysis under Cox and our other case law, quite I think, just says it's like a burden shift, right? And you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, essentially. The, the, the presumption shifts, so the state has to prove that it wasn't prejudicial, that it did not have an effect on the jury versus the defendant having a showing, showing that it had a substantial effect on the jury. And on a mistrial kind of motion, it's the same test. Was there a reasonable impact on the outcome of the jury because this, in this case, because the evidence came in. You know, it's the trial error, but that's what the trial error is here. So. Is the real issue here who bears the burden? And then beyond that, at the end of the day, is the question before us just kind of the same question we always address in these cases, which is do we think this had an impact on the outcome of the case? there's all these kind of distinctions up above, but at the end of the day, it comes down to this question, do we think this was so prejudicial that it changed how the jury, it it reasonably could have changed how the jury looked at it?
0: I think that's the court's decision. I think what the first thing this court has to decide is what is the standard of review? And the state is saying abuse of discretion. Abuse of discretion is the standard of review. What I think is what Cox says is that this court must conduct an independent evaluation, which in fact, means that it is to be conducted de novo. The idea is this court- well, So- <laughs> I mean, if says kind of appeals whether the trial court clearly the That- to <laughs> 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 i I, I- I, fortunately, Sorry. nobody hears from Cox, but it was. I think it's a confusing opinion because it does say abuse of discretion. But then later on in the opinion, it says, we must conduct an in- independent evaluation of the jury's verdict. I don't know of any other re- way to read independent evaluation of the jury verdict as de novo review. So my impression is that Cox says, we need to conduct an independent review, a de novo review. And quite frankly, that's what this court does all the time in determining prejudice. And I'll point to you to several cases. For example, the Brady determination of materiality is exactly what this court does in these cases. For materiality, in Brady it says, evidence is material only if there's a reasonable probability that had the evidence been disclosed to the defendant, the result of the proceeding would have been different. A reasonable probability is one that is sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome, and that's exactly that is exactly what this court is supposed to do in this case. And what this court said in Patterson versus the State was that 692 Northwest Second 452 is said we agree and conclude because materiality issues under Brady combine issues of fact and law, the proper standard of review is de novo. That's exactly what it is. So that's what, and that's what Cox says. Independent valuation. it is de novo review. That this court needs to look at this case, not under the abuse of discretion, but rather as a de novo so, review. So what does that
1: mean, though, that we can go back and look and make fact determinations for ourselves?
0: I, I think what it means is you look at C, is, is there a reasonable probability that in this case, if the evidence had not been admitted, would the outcome would have been different. One that is, and the, the phrase that they use, sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome of the trial. But that's the test we use
1: all the time, right? That whether is, we call it de novo or abuse of discretion, that's our test for harmless error.
0: Well, I, I, what there, what I, 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 that's correct, Your Honor. But what I, I think what the state is arguing is we have to defer to the trial court's determination as to whether that was. And I'm saying that this court needs to conduct a de novo review.
2: Counsel, let's make sure we're on the same page as to what the standard here is. The court of appeals enunciated the standard on granting a mistrial as follows quote if there is a reasonable probability in light of the entirety of the trial including the mitigating effects of a curative instruction that the outcome of the trial would have been different <clears throat> had the incident resulting in the motion not occurred end quote do you agree with that standard that is the standard correct correct sir. okay thank you but what the court of appeals says is we need
0: to defer to the discretion of the trial court in making that determination. That's where we disagree with the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals opinion in this case, and the state is arguing that that's, we need to defer to the discretion of the trial court. And that's where the disagreement is. Not that the standard, the standard is exactly as as you pointed out. But the question is, do you look at that in a deferential state of point or do you do it de novo? And our position is de novo as I suggested, that does Brady. Was there um on the
1: objection issue here? So, which may go to kind of how the multiple issues. So, as to the admissibility of this evidence, that this evidence came in. On the one hand, I can see the argument that the motion for mistrial raised the issue and the trial court got a chance to address it, and so the policy implications underlying that dichotomy don't really apply. On the other hand, because no objection was raised when this first came up, you know multiple questions and answers came in. You know, Had the objection first been raised when the first question was asked, we wouldn't have this issue. So are we in harmless error territory? or Are we in plain review or plain error territory?
0: Well, the way the trial court did, it, so the defense counsel explained that we did not object right away because we didn't want to call attention to it. So in fact, they came later and said, we did not want to call attention to it because in fact, what, the, what had happened on it, they moved on to a different war and they are worried about the timing of the objection.
1: But isn't that a kind of strategic decision that people can make all the time, but we would still typically treat that as plain air? It seems like the mistrial motion kind of adds in a weird wrinkle that's at some level, Maybe irrelevant, I, I guess, So, in this objection question, as to the admissibility of the evidence as opposed to the discovery.
0: I think that's fair. I mean, it would be, we would be, if they objected, and we would be discussing whether it was prejudicial, the motion mistrial does add an element to it, which is true. And an important, speaking of wrinkles, an incredibly important wrinkle, is that the trial court applied the wrong standard in determining whether to grant the mistrial. And so in this particular case, made a motion for mistrial and the court specifically said I'm looking at this I see no manifest necessity to whether a trial a mistrial should be granted that's the wrong standard that is absolutely the wrong standard the manifest necessity standard is only to be applied when the mistrial is granted over the defendant's objection The manifest necessity standard is an incredibly high standard because. Did did the Court of Appeals analyze that, not necessarily outcome, but
1: analyze that right, though, even though they applied the wrong standard, an appellate court can come in and apply the correct standard?
0: Well, I see what I think, what the trial court, what the appellate court did wrong was they said, we're going to defer to the district court. And what I suggest is this is the wrong case to defer to the district court because the district court applied the wrong standard. And again, the manifest necessity standard is an incredibly high burden because of double jeopardy concerns. When you grant a mistrial over the objection of the defendant, there are double jeopardy concerns. And so in those cases, this court and the Supreme Court has had an incredibly high burden to granting a mistrial when the defendant objects. Those concerns are not... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead finish your th- no, 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 no. I've lost
4: it. <laughs> I, I I guess I was wondering, um Mr. Colbert, you know, another wrinkle it seems to me in this uh the standard of review issue is do we and this is a more of a question than 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 anything. Do do we apply the Cox standard of review, de novo standard of review, which is what you're arguing for, when we've never applied the rebuttable presumption and the Cox factors in the context of inadmissible uh, trial testimony—it's always been testimony or evidence that's come in from the outside, the, the the bailiff who says something to you know to the you know members of the jury or something like that. So do we? So I'm I'm trying to figure out where that piece of it plays in.
0: Well and it's, a, it's a really good question, Your Honor, and I think there has been some confusion about the Cox factors. I think thats are sort of separate than the standard review. The Cox factors, of course, should be applied, because if you look at the Cox factors, they are exactly what you'd want to consider when considering a motion mistrial. They talk about the prejudicial nature of the evidence. That's certainly something to consider. They talk about the weight of the evidence. Absolutely, something should be considered, and they talk about whether curative instructions should be given. So, those factors are absolutely to be considered. The, to me, the argument is about the standard that's to be applied when it goes up on appellate review. And I, again, I, I have to emphasize that in this case, the trial court used the wrong standard. What the trial court should have used is the reasonable probability standard, which is a much much lower standard. Reasonable probability so is. but <laughs> is, can we do an
1: independent review to see if the evidence meets a reasonable probability standard, just like the court of appeals did? I mean, you disagree with the outcome, but that was kind of the analysis they did.
0: I would suggest to you that the trial, the court of appeals did not do. Okay. That well, so what?
1: but we can come and take this reasonable probability standard and say. We'll independently review the record, and what do we think?
0: I think that's a really difficult question, Your Honor, to be honest, in the sense of if, if the idea is we're going to give this discretion to the trial court because they're in the best position to make it, if they use the wrong standard, then it seems to me if the idea is they have the discretion, I, I think you have two choices. One is to conduct a novel review or to reverse the conviction outright. If, for example, if the jury finds by clear and convincing evidence the person is guilty, this court doesn't get to go, well, I'm reviewed, we found beyond a reasonable doubt. So I, especially because this court has made it quite clear, this is a different deferential standard of view and the trial court's in the best decision. They applied, the the trial court applied the wrong standard. We don't know.
1: So, but just to clarify what you said, so, if it is an abusive discretion standard, we certainly should send it back because they used the wrong standard. And But if, it, if we do an independent, what you're calling de novo review, then we would be within our realm to kind of come up with the decision of whether this should have been excluded or not.
0: Not whether excluded, the question becomes whether-
1: Or, or was, whether a new trial should yes, be. Yes, exactly, right, yes. whether reasonable sorry,
0: probability. Yes. And, well, and,
1: excluded, and, because it should have been excluded, do you exactly, get a new trial, Exactly, exactly
0: yes. right, John. And, and so can the- Can
1: I just, uh, one other question, I'm sorry to- sorry keep doing this but um on the cautionary instructions you know there is some research that says cautionary instructions in many ways are counterproductive and actually draw the jury's attention but are you're not making that particular argument in this case that the cautionary instructions that we should rethink our our jurisprudence on cautionary instructions
0: well i'm i am I guess I'm making a cautionary argument about cautionary instructions. So, indeed, I am. I do think the idea is this is ignore the person behind the curtain. I think there are some circumstances where cautionary, we have, I think cautionary instructions are a bit of a legal fiction. It is contrary to all we know about human nature. If you say, don't think about that blue elephant, don't think about the blue elephant, people are going to think about the blue elephant. But if we adopt the Cox
1: standard, then we would consider cautionary instructions. That's kind of where I'm... I, so. I, think, it's,
0: I, th- I think it is appropriate to consider whether... Co- consider that could be a factor, as I think that's what Cox says. Cautionary instructions are a factor to consider. I don't think that they are, that they are the constitutional solve. I don't think that that is going to resolve all the issues regarding the prejudicial evidence, especially where you have evidence that is so prejudicial. That is, and not only was it prejudicial, it was not given to the defense attorney. And the defense attorney in particular, what they're talking about specifically, was the idea that the that the police officer said this corroborated the complainant's testimony, saying essentially this is what we believe The complainant, and this is why we believe, because this evidence, which you're not going to see, corroborated the testimony. And those cases, I don't see how the cautionary instruction can take that out of the judges of the jury's mind. I do want to emphasize that this district court applied the wrong standard. And so the idea that this court has said many times that when the district court as a matter, makes an erroneous matter of law, it is as a matter of law an abuse of discretion. And that makes sense, because the idea of deferring to the trial court is, here's an acceptable range of decisions you get to make. If the trial court is using the wrong range, it does no longer makes any sense to defer to the trial court. The trial court in this case used a much higher standard so in this particular case, there is no reason, and as a matter of law, I would suggest that this court cannot defer to the trial court.
1: On the jury instruction piece itself, what significance should we get to the fact that the defendant in this case... Uh, defense counsel agreed to the jury instructions and, and solving the issue that way?
0: I, th- I think that's, a, you know, you're between a rock and a hard place. And I think people are in the sense of a, they agree to the language, and I think they've decided that would be better than no jury instruction. And again, I think it can be a factor to be considered, and that certainly is a piece of it, the fact that they agreed to it. And it's interesting because I see my time is up. Thank you.
4: You
3: have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Mr. Everson.
5: May it please the court, counsel. My name is Michael Everson. I represent the respondent in this case, the state of Minnesota. I'd like to begin my argument by focusing on what is the primary legal issue here. That is the appropriate standard of review. And once that's been discussed, I would like to apply that standard to the facts of this case. This court has repeatedly held that the proper standard of review for this type of issue that being the denial of a mistrial based on an evidentiary error occurring at trial is an abuse of discretion in finding there is a reasonable probability that the outcome of the trial would be different if the events that prompted the most the mistrial motion had not occurred and the state cites a number of briefs on pages 12 and 13 of the state's brief to stand for that very proposition Now, rather than apply this long-standing, well-established standard, appellant claims that the standard of review from State versus Cox should apply. But Cox is a case about outside influences on a jury. Those are influences beyond the confines of what we call a trial. And there are a number of reasons that support that reading of Cox. Before you get there... what's again
1: what's the difference between uh, what's the difference between an abusive discretion standard and when we have i mean our job on when we ultimately get to harmless error is to look at was there a reasonable likelihood that the trial court or that the that the person basically would have been convicted had this evidence not come in and if if so then we're, it's fine if not then not I don't understand what the difference between an abuse of discretion and an over review is there because what we're doing is going back and looking at the trial court sure. record. So I.
5: Yep. So when we're dealing with a, uh, a mistrial motion, we have a ruling from the district court who's in the best position to judge the effect of any, any error. And for that reason, because we have express findings from the district court. and So we don't... Okay, go ahead. And and I I would note here, I know there's been a lot of discussion about the district court applied the wrong standard. And while I would acknowledge the district court used the term manifest necessity, when you look at what the district court actually did, the district court did the correct. What findings did the district court make? They're made on page 750 of the transcript. And what the court said is, and at this time, I'm going to deny the motion for a mistrial. The basis is going to be the standard for a mistrial is manifest necessity. But then the court went on, due to an error that has occurred that is so significant or serious that it cannot be cured with an intervention less drastic than granting the mistrial. And the But what are court-
1: the findings? That's a conclusion of the law of what standard they're going to apply. What 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 findings do we have to defer to that underlies that where's that in the record
5: uh the next page the court kind of goes on to make a number of of findings it says it's necessary to look at the nature of the the violation, sort of goes out outline the standard then it says in this case it does not appear that this is something that has been repeatedly happened it happened matter quite by accident and although the discovery issue is of a concern i don't believe it rises to the point of a constitutional bi- violation um, I don't believe it's fatal to this this trial, and my analysis is that the trial will continue. Um, so, so that's the court's. So court's it's
1: good enough the, on the admissibility part of it for the trial court to just say, "I don't think it matters; that it's not going to affect the outcome, and we should just ex- and we have to accept that."
5: Correct. The, and the, the court court went on over the next couple of pages to explain more as to why this evidence should not have
1: come I went in. went in to talk about curative instructions.
5: Right. And, but, and, yes, and then at that point, the court, um, the court had taken a recess after hearing arguments from both parties to consider this issue. The court t- sort of took an initial shot at drafting what it felt was an appropriate curative instruction then read that to the parties. So everybody, the, everybody agreed.
1: So the things we defer to is the district court saying, I don't think this is going to make any difference in how the jury views it, and especially because I'm going to give a curative instruction. And that's what we, and we just need... And we can't question that. We can't question that.
5: Well, you can review for a clear abuse of discretion. I'm not aware of any case where this court's found an abuse of discretion in the context of reviewing a mistrial motion. And sort of to Justice Lilly point, I'm not aware of any case where a curative instruction was given where this court has reversed that conviction. That's not to say there's not a case out there, but my research has not revealed any. Um, so for that reason, because we have action of the district court, a finding of the district court, that's why you review for an abuse of discretion. And that's what distinguishes this from a case where there's been an objection that's overruled at trial the court reviews the initial evidentiary ruling for an abuse of discretion and if the court finds there's been an abuse of discretion then it sort of on its own has to review the impact that that error would have because in that kind of case we don't have a ruling from the district court as to the effect that that error had on the trial now i'd like to get back to this question of the scope to which Cox applies, and I've, um, there, there are a number of reasons why Cox applies to outside influences on a jury. One, look at the facts of Cox. It involved a bailiff who was responsible for escorting the jury outside of the courtroom made a statement to the jurors outside of the courtroom indicating that he essentially believed the defendant was guilty. Cox talks about you voir dire the jurors. That's plainly not applicable to a situation where we have an evidentiary error occurring at trial. Cox expressly refers to in multiple parts, this is the the language of Cox, to quote, the the impact of outside influences on criminal trials discusses extrinsic matters. All of the cases, and in particular, the federal cases that Cox cite all of those cases involve outside influences and discuss why a different standard should apply in the context of extrinsic material. Just to give you a couple of examples, Cox relies heavily on Parker. Parker talks about it's essential that the evidence developed against the defendant must come from the witness stand in a public courtroom where there's the full protections of the judicial process. United States versus Howard. The conclusions to be reached in the case must be induced only by evidence and argument in open court, not by outside influences. All of the cases use that sort of language to discuss the concerns about outside influences. There was also a discussion here about the presumption, that that in a sense there's a presumption of prejudice that the state must rebut when you read cox cox talks about that presumption solely in the context of a a private con private comment to the jury by a court official or a person acting on behalf of the court okay so that's sort of another distinction or another reason why it's clear that that cox and the cox presumption should not apply in this type of case where events are happening on the record with both both parties there. Um, and there are a number of good reasons why Cox applies a special test in a somewhat stricter standard of review to outside influences on a jury. One, the jury is receiving information without the presence of defense counsel, the defendant, or the judge. So, but isn't
1: Cox just a species of our general, our general rule that if there's a constitutional violation, which there clearly was in Cox, that then the burden flips and it's the burden is on the state to prove up beyond a reasonable doubt that it didn't have an effect on the jury? So that's Cox and that's a bunch of other cases. And I think what the argument that the defense is making is that there actually was a constitutional violation here, a different one than in Cox. But the constitutional violation here was that this was so prejudicial that basically no one could believe, I suppose, that that, uh, that someone could get a fair trial because this evidence came in, even with the cautionary instructions. So what do you think of that argument that that's a constitutional violation?
5: Sure. So... You know, this court has adopted a number of standard of reviews to deal with particular types of It's kind of a mess, of I will grant you that, That, yes. that occur, and I, I'm not implying it's a mess, I think well, it's appropriate. I will. Okay. But, I mean, I think it's appropriate you apply different standards to different types of errors. So whenever a defendant is making a claim or an appellant is making a claim on appeal, you need to analyze what is that precise claim. And then you need to identify the burden of proof, or I guess the standard of review that an appellate court applies. I'm not aware of any authority that simply says a defendant can raise a claim of constitutional error and get a different standard of review than would otherwise apply to an evidentiary error. I mean, what an evidentiary error or what the, the standard of review that applies to an evidentiary error such as this is ultimately geared towards finding is whether or not a defendant's right to a fair trial has been violated. So you know it's a lot like I, when, as I've thought about this this issue, I think about it a lot of like the County of Sacramento versus Lewis, where you don't just call something substantive due process if you already have a more narrow test. Now that's not a you know that's not the greatest. Analogy, but I think it's one that, that works here. When we already have a test, that's the test that should be applied to determine if a defendant has received a, a fair trial.
2: Counsel, I, I would be um, not candid if I told you I didn't have any concern about the prosecution's tactics here. And in particular, um, the prosecution, the prosecutor is inviting the detective to talk about and draw opinions and conclusions from pictures that are expressly not going to be introduced into evidence. Is there, is there some reason to suggest that this was done in, in good faith and does not constitute prosecutorial misconduct?
5: You know, we, we are not in any way defending what the prosecutor did here. We concede there was in an, an, an error. You know, I, I was not at trial, so I don't know exactly what was going through through. The prosecutor's mind but you know I acknowledge that yes this was inappropriate evidence that should not have been offered
2: and then I'm also concerned about the fact that later on after this issue had been vetted and decided the prosecutor then makes reference to cleaning up mm-hmm. which it seems obvious is referring to the detective's testimony about cleaning things up afterwards um, is, is can you conceive of a good-faith reason to ask that question well
5: I, I one, I think it would have been best if the prosecutor had avoided that that phrase. However, moments before the prosecutor asked that that question, Miss Holding Eagle had testified that that the appellant had invited her into the room, and that sexual he had just been sexually penetrating the victim, and he said, "Okay," and kind of moved her head down as if you know, to clean thing, things up. So my impression is this was the prosecutor just saying, you know, was frankly surprised that one of the defendants was testifying to this fact just that I just want to make sure you understand.
2: Okay. I, I, I see that point in, in light of all of this, why shouldn't we shift the burden to the, the state to show that this error and the failure to grant a mistrial, um, was not prejudicial? In, in other words, essentially do what we did in Ramey.
5: Well, because one, there's not a prosec- prosecutorial misconduct claim here. So I don't, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm not prepared to respond to why prosecutorial misconduct standards should, shouldn't apply other than to say that this is the claim that's been raised here. Um, you know, this is, again, the, the, the standard that applies when you are challenging and you know, we look at what is being challenged and that is the district court's denial of a mistrial
1: motion. So so what 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 did the district court deny when they denied the mistrial motion? What was that motion about? What, so, I mean, it, go
5: ahead. So sure so what what happened was when the detective testified as we've discussed there was no objection. When the detective was done, the defense attorneys stood up after the jury had left and said, you know, I don't recall ever receiving this report. And there was some discussion back and forth. The prosecutor said, I believe it was sent with, you know, on, on this date, so the court said well let me see the report i'm going to take a break i'll come back after lunch and we'll decide what to do So,
1: was the mistrial a motion about the discovery violation or was it about the admissibility of the evidence
5: it was initially about the discovery violation then when the court came back after lunch the court said you made made some some findings about the discovery violation and then went on to say, you know, sorta of suasponte, sponte raised this issue. I guess maybe I can
1: cut this part of my questioning short. So do you
5: think, are we in
1: harmless error land or are we in plain error land as, as regarding the admissibility as opposed to the discovery
5: violation? I think because the district court, suasponte sponte intervened uh, and made a ruling, I think we are in harmless error. I, I, the, the state's not making any plain error argument here. Um, I did wanna make one point with respect to this idea of do, do we apply you know, a separate constitutional standard or the, the mistrial standard. Um, one of the cases that the state cites in this brief is State versus Manthe, which, um, give me just a moment, I will get you a citation. Um, state versus Manthe at 711 Northwest 2nd, 498. It's a case from this court, from from 2006. And this court, at the beginning of its opinion, framed the issue as Manthe asked for a new trial, arguing that she was denied her constitutional right to due process in a fair trial by the admission of hearsay and other prejudicial evidence. The court then went on to analyze that issue by applying the plain error standard for anything that was not objected to, or the standard mistrial standard for anything that was objected to because there had then been a, a mistrial motion. So if this court were to rule that COX supplies and that you can, you know, sort of place a constitutional label on what is otherwise an evidentiary claim and get a higher standard, this court's going to have to overrule that part of Manthe. And the state would submit that that's not, that's not not warranted because we already have a standard a workable standard for addressing mistrial motions now i'd like to briefly apply the standard of review to the facts of this case Um, for a number of reasons the district court did not abuse its discretion in finding that a curative instruction was appropriate to remedy the error here and that a, a Mr.
4: Council, I'm sorry. Before you go on, sure. I, I'm just thinking here about what your statement about Manthe, and I just want to go back and, and walk that through a little bit. So your position would be that this is not the first time that we've had sort of this meshing, um, for lack of a better term, I think it's what Justice Thiessen was talking about, where you, you know, you've got these constitutional issues involved, you know, meshing with basic evidentiary issues. So you're saying we've I have to go back and look at Manthi but we've crossed that line before in Manthi and even though it it too rose to a constitutional dimension which is what you know Cox is talking about you're saying we we would still apply that that same abusive discretion standard of review
5: correct that's what you did in in Manthi and I I mean you know I would submit that you likely did that because although the error was framed in a constitutional sense the court asked themselves, what is really being challenged here? And then applied that standard of review. Because again, what all standard of reviews ultimately go to is whether a defendant's right to a fair trial was violated. And that's ultimately what we do. And if we're going to allow a defendant to just say, well, this is a constitutional violation, that's going to swallow all the other standards, which is not yeah. something that okay. this court wants. And frankly, it's not an appropriate way to review trial errors. Now with respect to the application of the standard of review to the, these facts, the district court did not abuse its discretion. One, the district court gave a prompt instruction to disregard. Okay, all parties agreed to all of the instructions that the district court gave. They, expressly told them that the detectives not an expert should ignore any opinion testimony told them not to use it for character purposes the jury asked for clarification in deliberation which shows they were mindful of their duty they asked they were then clearly told and again all parties agreed to that instruction the the stricken testimony was relatively brief, only one and a half pages and an 1,100-page transcript involving many witnesses. The weight of the evidence indicates no impact on the verdict. This was a strong case. We have the victim's detailed testimony. It was corroborated by her extensive injuries. She had extensive bruising on her arms, legs, and neck.
1: Don't you think, though, that a police officer standing up there, you know, in his uniform, saying the victim is right here and you should believe the victim, kind of setting aside all the other evidence, isn't that pretty powerful evidence that uh, if it was incorrectly introduced, could reasonably, some reasonable probability, that could have an effect on the jury?
5: Well, a couple of points. One, we have an instruction to the jury that he's not an expert. You need to disregard that opinion. Two, I believe the record reveals he was in plain clothes. Um, but, um, and third, if you look at what the detective actually said, he didn't say, I believe the victim. He just said, there is this image that might corroborate, which you know. again, I'm not in any way trying to defend that, but it's not quite the same sort of instance where the officer says, i believed this happened so which you know again there's some mitigation of the effect there in terms of the strength of the, the the case again again we have extensive physical injuries fresh physical injuries on the victim i'd point the court to exhibits 9 through 18 32 through 35 and the doctor's testimony at pages 648 through 58 of the transcript that describe what are really serious bodily injuries um, we We also have the testimony of tim Tim F as he was identified in my my brief, and this makes this case somewhat unique in that we had a third party with no real connection to anybody here who was with the participants that night he He noted that that appellant and miss holding eagle were were acting weird, he was so concerned. He called 911 after they, they left. And he corroborated details about how Ms. Ms. Holding Eagle, an appellant, lied to the victim about their relationship status. Um, so, you know, I think that's really significant in this case. Um, we also have the fact that the appellant lied to the police when he was, was interviewed. He said no sexual contact occurred. And it was only after the fact, when it became clear that he was caught in a lie, that he changed his story and admitted that sexual contact had occurred. We also had apparent blood stains on the couch where the victim indicated that this assault occurred. So all of those those facts, the strength of the case, the, the district court's prompt, curative instruction, all of that indicates that the district court in this case did not clearly abuse its discretion in denying the mistrial motion i would also note just i just ask you i mean would it
1: your be your position even if we were to adopt a de novo standard review or non non non-discretionary standard review that you would still win because of all those things
5: yes that, that was actually my next point um you know, when you apply the Cox factors in, in, in this case, the state still wins because again the, the record is clear that the district court took appropriate action. The district court did exactly what it was supposed to do in this case. And when you apply those four four factors, they all indicate that any error here or any decision to deny the mistrial and find that the curative instruction was sufficient to alleviate any error was appropriate or, again, as the state would submit, not an abuse of discretion. Now, unless the panel has any further questions, the state would waive the remainder of its time.
3: Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Colbert, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to just make three points. First, counsel keeps referring, his argument is essentially that the trial court did not abuse its discretion. The trial court used the wrong standard and therefore, as a matter of law, abused its discretion. I'm going to quote what standard the trial court used. The basis for drying, excuse me, the basis is going to be the standard for mistrial is manifest necessity due to an error that has occurred that is so significant or serious that it cannot be cured with an intervention less drastic than granting the mistrial. Again, that's when a mistrial is granted over the defendant's objection. That's not what occurred here. So because of that, the trial court used the wrong standard and it was a higher standard. So the trial court, by as a matter of law, abused his discretion so what mr.
4: Colbert it sounds like you don't uh, put any weight on um, counsel's at least interpretation of what the district court said I mean what I what I heard uh, opposing counsel say is, well he said he was using manifest ne- necessity but that's not in fact what he did
0: I, I don't know how you go there right I mean I think here's this because it says the court says the standard for mistrial and then says manifest necessity I, I, I'm at a loss to see how there's a different standard applied. So, here,
1: as I'm reading the transcript though, so they, he does state that standard, and then or the trial court states that standard, and then the trial court walks through a- analyzing the discovery violation, making some findings that it didn't repeatedly happen, it was by accident, and so the discovery violation didn't violate that standard. But what, I'm still not clear what findings the district court made with regard that we need to defer to with regard to the discovery, excuse me, the admissibility issue, which is really, I think, at the heart of what you're arguing about.
0: I think that's right. And so so I think what, so the court did make findings that the discovery was, and that goes to the point of what the standard should be, because the court made findings that the discovery violation was accidental. That is actually a finding that this court has to defer to. That's a finding of fact. That's exactly what this court should defer to. The idea that it was not prejudicial, that there was not a reasonable probability, that's a mixed question of law and fact. And that has always been the province of this court to review on a de novo basis. So if the district court would have said it wasn't prejudicial because of
1: finding A, finding B, finding C, we would defer to finding A, B, and C, but not... But because they didn't make those findings, this is where you're coming to this, where exactly we step back right, a little Exactly Your Honor.
0: And that's exactly what this court did. And I said it before, Pedersen versus State. Using the exact same standard, this court said that it is a matter of de novo review. It's also de novo review, for example, the prejudice when you join defendants. The court says, we're going to view the issue of prejudice de novo. That's what this is about. And that's what this court views
4: to know. Council, what do we do with Manthe? Um, opposing counsel says we've, we've crossed this bridge before um, where you've got sort of the, the mixing of constitutional um, issues with, with evidentiary ones. And again, I'll have to go back and read Manthe, but what's your take on that? Because he says we've both. done this before so, and we don't need to, to we'd have to overrule manthy is what he's saying.
0: As I've read this court's cases, it has been it has been a little loose in how that comes out. Because what the court will say, we review certain things for abuse of discretion, but review constitutional claims de novo. And so uh, the way I read Manthe, and again, I, I, I'm like you, I would need to go back. But so at the beginning, they say this is what they're arguing. And then later on, they talk about. But they don't recognize that there's two different standards. And that that's my recollection of that. And so this court has recognized that we lo- review constitutional issues, de novo, that is a bedrock principle. And it's especially where you're applying, it's a mixed question of law and fact, which is what this case is all about. So what what do you make of the
1: argument that defense counsel or uh, that the state makes that an argument that there's a constitutional violation because something is so prejudicial that it changes the. It makes for an unfair trial. Just swallows the rule, and so everything becomes a constitutional violation.
0: I think that that's this court has recognizes there's a difference between evidentiary error and evidentiary error that bribes right to fair trial, and it's it says and they change the standard of review. If but usually, there we
1: actually find some specific constitutional violation. Like in Cox, it was and outside information coming and affecting, infecting the jury, which violates confrontation issues, et cetera. Sometimes you know, it's you know a Batson issue. Obviously there's a constitutional issue there that's separate than just the kind of prejudicial nature of evidence that comes in through the ordinary course of how evidence comes in.
0: That, that's correct, and again, I, I think it is. So are you arguing for something beyond that now? Well, I think this court has recognized that there's a difference between evidentiary errors you know,
1: that what, what cases have we recognized that step that doesn't appoint to a different constitutional, a specific constitutional okay, violation? So
0: what I can here's my note. So I'm sorry. This is the best I can do for you. They talk about review evident, This is what you talk about. Review evidentiary rulings for an abuse of discretion. If the testimony is erroneously admitted, we review for harmless air, and that's Valterra 718 Northwest Second 425. And then it goes on to say, but if the er- erroneous admission of evidence violated the defendant's constitutional rights, we will reverse the jury verdict unless the jury verdict was surely unattributable to the heir. So this court has recognized there's a difference between evidentiary missteps and constitutional violation of the divide. The, po- the other point I want to make about Cox that's really important is, counsel can't point to why we should defer to the trial court in this in 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 this particular case, where we have prejudicial evidence from a state's witness and not in Cox and in fact, in Cox, you can make an argument that it makes more sense to defer to the trial court because they're taking testimony from jurors they're going to make actually they're going to be able to determine credibility. So if we're going to defer to the trial court, it would be much more likely in those cases where the trial court is hearing evidence. And so if we, in fact, if that's going to be the standard, it has to be in Cox and in this case. It it should be in both. And again, uh, my suggestion is that prejudice, findings of fact, of course, if we defer to the trial court, but prejudice is something for this court to review. So
1: on that point, does it matter whether the, the violation is a constitutional violation or not? Because it seems like at the end of the day, what you're arguing is that the, 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 the wrong standard was applied for the discovery. The wrong standard was applied, and, so, and no findings were made. And so in that world, we don't need to defer. And that would be true. I don't know why that would matter, whether it was constitutional or an evidentiary violation in some sense.
0: If the wrong standards apply, I can yes. There should be no deference to the trial court because I think that's an abusive discretion. I and mean, it feels like Cox is law. kind of
1: a red herring, quite frankly. In a in a, a little bit of in a somewhat. It, it,
0: it, it, right. I think that's fair. So, thank you, Your Honor.
3: Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.